Hello, you're listening to the Cleveland Review of Books second podcast. I'm Billy Lennon, the editor-in-chief of Cleveland Review of Books, and I'm joined by three esteemed guests. Uh, first, we got Eric Sandy. Eric, how you doing? Pretty great. Glad, glad to be here. Mm-hmm. Yep. We got the Cleveland uh, ranter and uh, Roldo Bartimol of the present. <laughs> Senior writer at Cleveland Scene, Sam Eller. How's it going, Sam? What's up, Billy? Thanks for joining. Glad to be here. And last but not least, we have the occasion for this podcast in many ways, um, who just came out with his first book, Good Kids, Bad City, Kyle Swenson. How's it going, Kyle? Doing great. Uh, Really happy to be here. Awesome. So why don't you each tell us, tell the listeners what, um, what you do now? Um, what are your positions? Um, uh, this is Eric Sandy. I um, currently work at a cannabis business publication uh, based in Cleveland, uh, as well as uh, doing freelance writing around town, and uh, have the privilege of saying a former scene employee, former right. scene writer. Do you just, is working for a weed publication, <laughs> does that just mean you just smoke a lot of weed, or... That's a very big part of it. Yeah, in fact, that'll be the second half of the podcast. Just getting extremely stoned and just sort of going to sleep. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Nice. first one just opened up in uh, Wycliffe, right? Yeah, we got dispensaries here in Northeast Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, little by little, it's all coming together. Ohio's sort of stumbling into uh, this new world. Get, get, get through the opioid crisis, too, you know? Is that part of it? That's, yeah. that's going to help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There ought to be some mechanism where, where um, profits from the marijuana industry could help combat the opioid crisis. That makes sense. That would. In uh, well-governed in, in many states, they do sort of fund substance abuse treatment programs, um, educational programs around that. I mean, to what end, it's hard to say. Yeah. But, uh, you know, part of it also is getting people to replace opioid prescriptions with medical marijuana. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which is also sometimes hard for states to figure out should be not a difficult proposition but here we are mm-hmm. cool stuff unfortunately irrelevant to uh <laughs> <laughs> going down a tangent okay. it's all good it's all good um i'm sam allard i uh, worked with eric at scene for over five years and i'm still there i'm now the uh senior writer which is a meaningless title sounds um, it sounds good though. that's cool, <laughs> sounds, cool. That sounds yeah. really senior can yeah. you just create your own title maybe? no no i was well i mean i, I was did, i was a staff yeah. writer and then eventually i you know got a, a promotion which meant nothing other than a new title in the masthead but yeah. I just, i'm just a news reporter at scene mm-hmm. covering all sorts of stuff there and i've been there since uh early 2013 actually like two or three weeks after eric got hired we uh, there's kind of a period of um, turnover and Eric and I were part of this new wave yeah. when Vince Gregoric was uh, made editor-in-chief. Halcyon era. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. French new wave. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And uh, this is Kyle and I work at the uh, Washington Post now. What's I, that? <laughs> you might have heard of it. It's a, uh, done it all weekly. Yeah, it's a, it's a little uh, news operation out there in, in the capital. Uh, but I was, I've been there about a year and a half and I worked at Scene for about three years before these guys did. Uh, they actually came right after I left, if I remember correctly. Right. Yeah. Passing yeah. up the torch at one point. But it was definitely, I mean, and I guess this is kind of what we're getting to, but like, we all lived through very different eras of scene. 
the Cleveland Alt Weekly, and there have been many different eras and kind of manifestations of the publication. So, so you want to get into that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I guess because I worked there, but going back, um, so like out of college, I knew I always wanted to do journalism. I was an English major, which doesn't really help you get into journalism. I found out, uh, but I uh, I also as like the oldest person here, I think, at the table. I graduated in college in 2007, which everyone who graduated that time mm. will tell you was mm-hmm. a terrible time to graduate, uh, and it was also a terrible time to get into journalism, just because of the financial collapse and things like that, but actually right out of college, I worked at Inside Business Magazine, which I oh. think, does that still publish? Hell yes, yeah. dude. Okay. That's right. a John yeah. Penning publication. So I was the, I was a... <laughs> Associate editor at uh, Inside Business Magazine. Um, yeah, when I was 22, and it was I was living at home, and you know I knew I wanted to do journalism. I always wanted to get into all weeklies. That was kind of like more my speed and personality. But uh, I worked at Inside Business. It was a job. I got laid off though about eight months in. Mm. I moved to Nashville. I kind of just bummed around there for a while, and eventually got a job. At a, as a business reporter at a weekly, not a, this is very complicated, it was not a weekly, it wasn't an alt-weekly, it was a straight weekly. <laughs> so yeah, I guess. weekly in Nashville? A new, yeah, yeah, it had been a five-day, it was called a city paper. Okay. Nashville city paper. And Just it had, complicated because that's also the name of an alt-weekly. I know, brand. yes, it, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it had been a five-day of a week daily, or like a, you know, what they used to call an afternoon paper. Uh, and right when I got hired, they had turned it into a weekly, or maybe it was a bi-weekly. I think maybe it was twice a week. I forget. I don't know. I was a business reporter there. And then I moved to covering cops and courts in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And I love Nashville. And I wanted to stay there for the rest of my life, but I got laid off from that job. <laughs> um, so I had two layoffs, and I was kind of like, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. I really didn't know what I was going to do. And a buddy of mine, uh, who's kind of a legendary scene editor, his name is Pete Cotts, who everyone knows, like... It's also just legendary throughout the all-weekly world across the country. He was a good friend of mine. He was like, my buddy Eric is taking over the scene. That was Eric Burnett. He had just been made editor of Cleveland Scene. He's like, he's looking for somebody. And I really didn't want to move back to Cleveland just because I was one of those people who had left and just didn't think I would ever come back. And um, I kind of like, well, maybe I should do this. Maybe I shouldn't. I applied. Eric was really cool. I met him. He's a wonderful editor, and I got hired, and I was there from, I think, May 2010 till 2013. Two, two quick questions. One is, how'd you meet Cots? Was he down in Nashville? Well, was he was it? actually in Nashville, and uh, he was running the Nashville scene Okay, yeah. after the Cleveland scene closed up, and he hated it there, and just wanted, and he, like, you know, P. Cots is this guy, he, like, loves the Midwest and Midwesterners, and he... I remember when I reached out to him, he was like, oh, well, a couple of Cleveland guys, we should get some beers, uh, which turned into a, a heavy night of drinking. But he, uh, he's, he's, so I met Cots through that, basically. And uh, yeah, what was your second question? Uh, the second question was in regards to uh, Mike McIntyre's piece about your book and yeah. uh, The Plant Dealer. And he mentioned something that I didn't know, um, that I guess after the, the, your initial piece in 2011, on which the book is based, you were sort of so disillusioned with Cleveland's criminal justice system and like that there wasn't there was sufficient mm-hmm. outrage that mm-hmm. sort of inspired you to 
move to your new job. Is that, uh, is well, that true? I mean, I just hadn't heard that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, uh, so 20... So, yeah, for the listeners, 2011, I wrote this story about a wrongful conviction case. I had met this guy named Kwame Ajamu, and he told me in 1975, him and his best friend and his brother had been convicted of this crime they didn't commit. And he had since been paroled out, but his brother and his best friend were still in jail. And he was like, will you look into this for me? And I wrote this story that came out in June 2011, which I thought was like the best piece of journalism I could do. You know, I, I thought it was like a bulletproof story. I thought it was great. If I can say that, but Dude, it's awesome. but I was like, you know, this is as good as a journalist that I can do, and I honestly thought when that hit, when that published, that these guys would get out of jail. And I think that might have been like a little naivete that I thought that like the jail doors would open and that journalism had that power. Um, but nothing happened, and afterwards, I was really like, you know what, fuck Cleveland, <laughs> and like going to Florida. Yeah, I'm moving to Florida. <laughs> now, I mean, and I didn't leave for a year and a half, but. And I also, like, just career-wise wanted to do something a little different. So uh-huh. I went to Florida to work in an alt-weekly in Florida called the Miami New Times, which is, uh, I think, one of the better alt-weeklies in this alt-weekly ecosystem. <clears throat> LeBron moves. Yeah, he, I pulled a LeBron <laughs> move. I totally yeah. lebron mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, – but, yeah, I was just, like, so disillusioned. I think, you know, we do these stories and, you know, you're so invested in them and then you expect certain results out of them. Mm-hmm. And I think totally that's – you know, a little naivete, and also you're just so involved in it, you kind of get uh, tunnel vision about it. So I definitely was really disillusioned. And really what I was disillusioned was I felt I had let these guys down, you know, that my story didn't do anything for them. So that was, yeah, definitely why I kind of was like, but also Cleveland was so whack back in the day, back then. I don't know if you... I mean, not much has changed. I know, but even like, it was like, it had reached this like critical whackness point where like, the guy, like the county corruption scandal had imploded and it just felt like nothing in Cleveland worked and the city was just like this broken edifice and so I moved uh, and eventually of course I moved back and I think that Cleveland had gotten in a much better place than it was at that point yeah the tone I mean the whole mood of the city was a little different I know it's easy to tie to LeBron coming and going I use Kyle Swenson coming and going as is my LeBron, uh, but um, you're gonna make me blush. <laughs> but it is uh, it's true. I mean, Cleveland felt different, and a number of things have happened since then. But there's no denying it. But I think when I so ago. when I left, right when I left, or right after that, so I left in like probably May of 2013, was when Vince Gregoric, who was a great friend of mine, became the editor of Scene. And he had been a writer with me. Or he had been the web editor, Web I guess. editor, yeah. Um, and that's when he hired you two, right? Yeah. And you were at the Sun newspaper. You were, like, hacking away. So at the, the time, the I, was, I was, yeah, covering <laughs> City Halls uh, in Strongsville and Lakewood uh, at the Sun newspapers, which exist only in theory these days. Uh, they've undergone a, a pretty rough um, evolution but, you know, and this is all going to sound very highly rehearsed, and it's not. It's the truth. Because I remember in 2011 when What the Boy Saw came out, had a really cool vintage cover, yeah. the throwback scene logo, the black and white photo. And I remember thinking, this is incredible. This is just a great story. And I think we may have conversed a little bit on Twitter. Yeah, we did. Because when you were leaving, I met with you and Vince and a few other folks, watched a Browns game, and basically was asking, like, you know, what's scene like? You know, should I, is this a good leap to take? And, and that was right, yeah, Vince was becoming the editor. 
obviously I took the job and um, it was a very interesting era. And so this idea of covering wrongful convictions, you know, to covering these huge, uh, you know, region or era defining stories to me was always like a guiding light of like, you know, listen, that was, it was a, a hell of a powerful story and a big topic. Every feature should aspire to something equally big. And every now and then, I think I hit that. But. Well, you also, I was going to mention, after Kyle's point, um, your big piece on Kevin Keith in late 2017, which to me is sort of up there with what the boys saw in terms of scenes, powerful, um, kind of agenda-setting features. And I wonder if you had the same kind of feeling or response of powerlessness in the, in the aftermath or just kind of your take on how that was received. Yeah, well, you know, to go back to what you were just saying, Kyle, like, it's interesting because in the end... With more t with the passage of time, I'm sure you'd be the first to say <clears throat> that actually your story did accomplish a lot. It just took a little while. Well, it um, did get them out of prison. Yeah, I mean, I eventually. Mean, it was, it was yeah. Um, but you're right. I mean, in the, in the, in the, <laughs> <laughs> I've been told again and again not to be so. <laughs> you're not going to sell any books if you're so <laughs> meek about it. But yeah, no. I mean, it did. Yeah, eventually. So my reporting led the Ohio Innocence Project to get like redouble their efforts and re refocus what they were thinking about and it led to their exonerations and um so yeah over time i should say like you know i was all like bummed out that it didn't work but eventually like it did actually do something so i actually had a a 180 on that before i had thought like and it wasn't just me i was like this is the best i could do but also like in journalism in general i thought like well you know is this just an ineffective medium you know or, or are people just not out there responding and now i'm a the other way i'm a actual a true believer in a, in a huge advocate in this type of work uh because it can even if you don't know immediately that it has any type of impact yeah that, that makes me think of something um i was going to ask you guys like how you find um, ideas for articles because there's like one you guys are writing every day especially for the people it's seen but then what just occurred to me is that, um, like, I was going to ask as well, like, what motivates you? And I was thinking about the myth of, like, unbalanced, or, like, balanced, like, um, journalism without having any agenda. And then I was thinking about how each one of these stories that you're looking for is motivated by an agenda. And it comprises, like, a great body of work that you could maybe, like, put as a collected book of like essays and some work and I, I was just thinking about Sam's idea of like um, journalism as a type of storytelling when I saw him uh, he gave a lecture about literary journalism I don't know if that that really connects here but it's just related to your idea like you you have to make a stance um, you can't just I think I probably said something like the idea of agendaless journalism or absolute journalistic neutrality is kind of a farce in my view. I mean, I think mm -hmm. the idea of like the journalism as a neutral journalist, as a neutral observer is kind of a silly construct. That's, I mean, it's kind of a self-serving view too. And I just dispute that. I, I feel very much like I, even if I'm not directly advocating for a particular cause or a particular side, um, I bring my own set of priorities and values to every story I cover. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just not a, a real neutral you know, arbiter of yeah, whatever. And, and I'm, I want to bring it back to more of like the content related stuff in a second, but as somebody who, you know, is always thinking about the form of criticism as a genre of writing, um, journalism is pretty much the only widely read way that people come to that, right? Um, and 
Yeah. I don't, I don't know what else I was going to say there. But, um. Well, I feel like what you were saying, I think that there's the objectivity kind of um, hole that a lot of people can fall into. And I think you see it in a lot of daily newspaper reporting mm-hmm. about how, well, he said this and then they said that, and there's no kind of like judgment call. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think what's really interesting about all weeklies is that, or at least, you know, in in the ones that I worked at, the tone was very much sharpened up where, like, you can say someone's an asshole if they're an asshole. You know, like, mm-hmm. let's not, like, beat around the bush. But, yeah. you know, there are bad guys, and you can call them out for being bad guys or when they've done things. that people are lying or spewing yeah. bullshit. I mean, you can say, mm-hmm. he said this, she said this, and he's a fucking idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's just being upfront about that. To me, it's so much more honest as a reporter than he said this, she said this, and yeah. you decide what's yeah. right. Well, no, but like we're supposed to, you know, as there's a lot of responsibility in what we do because we're sitting there mediating these different sides of these arguments and things like that. And really, like if someone's full of shit, we're supposed to say they're full of shit. Well, if you think about, I mean, the story at hand, um, the 1975 convictions here is a great example because there was a very long documented public record and you started looking at it and realized actually all these supposed facts all these records are wrong they're lies they're you know right something was either they were either outright lies or negligence or the product of everything you explore in the book all these broader themes and you know, disputing the facts, I think sometimes people misread that as like a lack of objectivity or rabble-rousing or just snark, internet snark or whatever, when it's actually just sort of pointing out that, yeah, you're right, either this person's an asshole or they're <laughs> lying, Yeah. and some we need to sort of get to the bottom of this, and it takes, it's very complicated. Well, I also think that it makes your reporting better, because if you're mm-hmm. going to throw a punch at somebody and say, like, this person's a bad person or this person's a liar... Like, your reporting has to be, like, super strong. Absolutely. So yeah, I think yeah. that's actually why the reporting you see in all weeklies is so... can be, like, so in-depth and good. And like, all the work, you know, that y'all have done. Uh, you've got to... you got to have your, your shit tight if you're going to, like, run into the cage with these, some of these folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think your, your audience turned into? Like, chain... How did your audience change when you went from the Washington Post um, from Cleveland scene? And what did that change? Do you think that had an effect of, like, you know, do you think that you could have, that your reporting would have caused um, what happened in terms of them getting out of prison if you had stayed in Cleveland? Do you mean if I had stayed in, like... Is there something about, like, moving to the Washington Post and then your reporting reaching, like, a wider audience and maybe people with more power in the suburbs versus, like, uh, the inner ring of Cleveland? Yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I mean, definitely, like, I have a... Like, more people read my stuff at the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. It definitely, like, carries a certain... um, Prestige. Yeah, I mean, prestige is probably bad. But, like, a little strength behind... The publication has a strength behind it, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, I also feel that the news business really changed right when I joined the Washington Post because um, because of the 2016 election. Like, I feel my whole thing is that my thinking is that before the 2016 election, there I, I feel like we were in like hot take culture. Like, you mm-hmm. could you know have a Gawker article that just 
aggregated something from somewhere else and just said, this guy's an idiot. (laughs) But, like, no reporting or anything like that. It was just basically, like, Mm -hmm. a hot take. And, like, everywhere was doing that. And I feel like after 2016, like, everyone, depending on, you know, regardless of whether you were a Trump supporter or not or what, like, everyone just wanted to know, like, what the fuck is going on. Like, they just wanted facts. (laughs) They were just like, what is happening in the country? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like hot take culture kind of died and withered after that because literally like I don't need to read a Gawker article or you know fill in the blank of another site where it's just somebody sounding off on something like I just need to know what's going I just need facts reported facts and so I think that that was a real shift in the national tone I think mm-hmm. yeah well I mean baked into that question you'd always you'd also asked about sort of finding stories and identifying topics and I think Kyle you're absolutely right um, especially on that national level but also trickling down to the local level I think part of conveying what's going on to people involves, yes, the daily sequence of events that the daily newspaper is usually very capable of of tackling, but also looking at something that happened a year or two ago or 40 years ago and explaining, all right, with the passage of time, here's what has really happened Mm -hmm. that, you know, we couldn't see in the moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, the presidential politics are a great example. I mean, the, the way we look at this era is just going to evolve and it's very complicated, but every little action that's being undertaken in Washington or in Cleveland, you know, it's not even just hindsight is 2020. It's just, you can start putting pieces together and telling a larger story. Obviously alt weeklies have the space to really stretch your muscles and tell those longer stories. Yeah, and I, I think the uh, <clears throat> the very same or a, a version of the same amnesia that afflicts national politics happens in local politics too. Mm-hmm. And so much of you know my reporting, Eric's reporting, Kyle's I'm sure, is about reminding local audiences what happened 10 or 20 or 30 years ago and mm-hmm. how it impinges upon current decisions that are being made. I mean, no one remembers the Michael White administration or what, or what happened 30 or 40 years ago. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just not in the popular consciousness anymore and so I feel like it has it's journalists have to sort of dredge up some of this old stuff to, to say the same thing is happening again mm-hmm. it uh, it informs the present I mean the, the what's going on in Coward County headquarters right now is there's a lot of history that's very important and you can't really look at it in a vacuum Michael White's administration is sort of uh, in many ways um, its legacy led into the current fourth term of, of current mayor Frank Jackson and even before Michael White you can go back to um, to earlier to earlier eras and Kyle I think in in the book you did a very good job of tying together mayoral administrations from 50 years ago yeah um, that still have uh, you know sort of a cosmic ripple effects mm. today well I think also for the bourbon <laughs> <laughs> I'd like some cosmic ripple effects in my glass. (laughs) Well, I mean, like, I was reading, uh, I read your, I think you and Vince did, it was like a clap back at Frank Jackson for, well, yeah, or it was a clap back at Cleveland.com. Yeah. Like, well, his wife's sick. (laughs) (laughs) You're the mayor. (laughs) (laughs) But I was, I was, and you know, he didn't have to run for a fourth term. No, it didn't. But also, I thought it was really interesting you brought up the other examples of people who had, uh, the council people whose health issues had, oh, yeah, that was, had been very politically yeah. chess-pieced. Uh, so, I mean, that's a great point. It's like, you have to bring all that stuff back up. I wonder if some of that has to do with, like, and this necessarily isn't a dig at 
cleveland.com or the plane dealer although it might be taken that way but you know if you're not if you're a reporter who's just shipped in or just hired here and not from here and maybe you don't know the historical history or stuff like that. Oh, dude, for sure. I mean, yeah. I remember, I mean, in our early years, it's seen even, it, I, I think it took me probably three or four years as a reporter and writer before I felt like I even had solid footing on like Cleveland's political landscape and history to, to write authoritatively about mm-hmm. it. Right. I was, you I mean, grown up here, you know. I, and yeah, and I'd grown up here and still I wasn't really solid on those, yeah. on those facts. I mean, for a long time, I, you know, coming from a magazine writing tradition, I was really just looking for good magazine-y feature stories. Mm-hmm. Didn't really consider myself. Well, you didn't a say how you got here to see. It yeah. doesn't matter. Oh, you know, my yeah, yeah, we kind of. I mean, it's it's okay. I went to grad school for creative writing and then came here. But I was what I what I wanted to do <laughs> is middle. What's that? In the middle school of journalism. Medill. Medill, my bad. My Joseph Medill. <laughs> I, I was a Medildo. <laughs> <laughs> As, as they say. That's some Dada. Yeah. In any case, I did the magazine track at Medill, mm-hmm. and it's always, you know, had my sights set on the New Yorker, Esquire, or whatever. And Eric and I talk. I mean, one of the cool things about working in an all weekly is the camaraderie with other writers and just kind of an engagement with contemporary long form journalism. We're reading a ton of stuff, admiring the works of writers like Kyle and national mm-hmm. magazine writers. Um, just trying to crank out cool features, you know. And then I'd be probably in 2016, incidentally, around the time of the election, the 2016 presidential election, but unrelated to it, I think I was kind of mobilized to just cover city politics and kind of the city power in a way I hadn't before, just because it wasn't being done. And I realized, I, you know, I could, you know, do kind of long, funny profiles, or I could really invest myself in writing about the city and how it's governed. And I've, for the past two years, been pretty much just doing that. Do, have you found that that's been as meaningful and I, I, to you it's, journalistically? Well, to me, it's harder. Yeah, it's a lot, sure. It's a lot harder. Um, I probably, I think it's more meaningful, yeah. Although the, um, uh, it can just be really annoying and unpleasant at times. I had a lot oh. more fun just writing yeah. <laughs> magazines. We, uh, well, I was, uh, I was just thinking that we're coming up on the five-year mark of... Uh, we did a, a St. Patrick's Day co-byline story where we just followed these guys who were trying to drink at every bar in Cleveland. The Cleveland Bar Experiment. So every Thursday they did five new bars, and for whatever reason, well, I guess we just needed you know a St. Patrick's Day Scene feature. That's a St. Patrick's Day issue, mm-hmm. and so we needed we always like scratching our heads to come up with an alcohol theme yeah. story for no. I mean, it's it's totally arbitrary. It's like what what can we include booze in? So we're like, well, let's just go fucking get drunk with those guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so on the other end of the spectrum of what we're talking about here, but that you know you talk about the camaraderie and basically just hanging out, talking about stories all the time. Mm-hmm. To me, that was an extremely oh fun uh, thing, and it's I the only, best you know, job. Yeah, it's 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 insanely fun. It's it is the best job. The the number of things you can do, of which news is a very big part. Reporting on news, um, the number of things you can do are it's limitless. Mm-hmm. There's a real creativity to alt weeklies. Um, it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, and that I think that is also like incredibly effective. Even moving on to a place like the Washington Post because it it teaches you to think very creatively about how to like cover things and like I remember when I was in Florida like uh, there was a uh, there's a lot of problems with the Fort Lauderdale Police Department a lot of complaints and stuff like that and they I at the same imagine. time they were doing yeah at the same time they were doing this big push with all these billboards because they were trying to hire people 
and I came up with this idea, like, I should just try out for the police academy. <laughs> See how that was. And so I wrote, I got a, you know, I got a lot, I got words out of uh, trying out for the police academy, which is there you go. very easy. You <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a real freedom at all weeklies, I think, to kind of test the, the narrative limits. I mean, mm-hmm. like, you can, it's real participatory stuff, mm-hmm. uh, immersive stuff. I, tr- I tried out for, you know, Captain America, the movie. In Cleveland. It's, it's almost like a little lab. Yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's, yeah. A, it's a lab. That's what I was thinking. And yeah. we talk about this, yeah. Eric and I have talked about this all the time. In the past, anyway, there had been a pretty common trajectory of moving from, well, I mean, you can, actually, you can talk about this, kind of as expected. Well, yeah, I mean, we talk about the alt-weekly ecosystem, and there really is one. And it, it includes some city magazines as well, but there's sort of... Um, well, anyway, there's there's a couple big annual get-togethers for all weekly folks, and I remember being at one, and this editor of uh, Philly Mag in Philadelphia was describing this trajectory that for many years really was just the recipe for a writer's career, basically, and it mm-hmm. almost always involved an alt-weekly at the start of it. Um, whether college came before that or not didn't really matter. The alt-weekly was the lab where you worked out everything, and then eventually the alt-weekly, you know, you, you grow into your talents, and... Um, just pure economics leads you to need a higher paying job. The alt-weekly you know, only has a budget of so much. Mm-hmm. And so then you get into um, uh, stuff like The New Yorker, you know, being, a, yeah. being a stringer and then maybe a staff writer position, New York Times Magazine. And that trajectory, I think, is a little shakier these days for a mm-hmm. lot of reasons. Um, They're which, dying, you know? Yeah, I yeah, mean... Yeah. A lot of them. A lot, well, a lot of alt-weeklies certainly are. A lot of budgets at larger magazines are shrinking. The idea of stringing for the New Yorker reliably and making a, a living, uh, you know, not that I can speak from experience, but I, I've thought a lot about this, and we've had many, I mean, thousands of hours of conversations, <laughs> Sam and I, about this very wow. topic, and it's, um, it's, uh, it's just, it, it's getting harder and harder just in a pure economic sense, and to me, I find it being in the in this line of work, very frustrating and hard to look at in a cheery lens um, because it is the most fun work and it's very, very important too. The support systems are eroding and there's, a, you know, I, I just don't think that's a, that's in dispute. What's the feeling at the Washington Post? I mean, are you planning to be there for the rest of your career now or is it, uh, what's, the, uh, what's the plan? Yeah, I mean, I can't, uh, you know, I can't really <laughs> complain. Uh, <laughs> Like the post is is amazing. It's wonderful. Uh, you know, it's growing. Uh, yeah, dude. There's a great hiring. feeling. Yeah, they're always hiring. There's a there's a great feeling there. There's a feeling that you know the work's important and uh, that the mission is is good. And you know, from people that I know who've been there a long time, this is definitely like kind of a new golden era for the for the publication. And so yeah, I mean, I never thought I'd work at the Washington Post. So I'm very surprised and like lucky that I, I worked there and I couldn't say more good things about it so cool dude they do I mean I will say that the post is actually interesting because there's a lot of all weekly people at the post like sprinkled all in particularly from my old publication the Miami New Times they've like there's a whole like mafia of us as we call it the New Times mafia or as our <laughs> old boss is called the alt post but, uh, there there's like about five or six of us um, because I think that the skills that you get at all weeklies really translate very well generally the news business I think you'd just be would you'd be surprised at the skills that you know you 
two probably have that you don't realize that are so like marketable. I mean, you're talking about story ideas, mm. Billy. Uh, like at all weeklies, you're just always having to like fire story ideas all the time. Like mm. especially you have to come up with five thousand word feature ideas and then small ideas and then like do you guys still do like the one? You probably don't do the one thousand word stories. Like, the newsers, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it depends. Maybe anyway, so there's like your mind's always having to come up with story ideas, and really obvious, honestly, a lot of times in all weeklies, it's like. We have to fill the fucking paper with something. Oh, so, yeah, like, you know, just like cranking out material yeah. at an unbelievable rate, yeah. and it's not stuff. With all due respect to aggregators and stuff, I mean, like people doing online content, we can't put that bullshit in the in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be, you know, originally reported material on a yeah. weekly basis. It's just nonstop writing mm-hmm. and reporting. And that that ethic, that like news generating idea ethic, is I think really like any newsroom in the country would be really happy to have someone like that mm-hmm. yeah um, uh, well I was gonna say I you know I really watched that develop thinking of, of me and Sam working together over the years and to your point it took a while to get a grip on everything <laughs> I know. but I you know I remember distinctly feeling a couple years in just you know you're never not anxiously looking for the next thing but I remember feeling like I was in a real flow state a couple years in and, and it well, well, we yeah, were, you those. We were in, I mean, honestly, within the first, like, couple of months, we were, I mean, we were both doing, like, back-to-back cover stories, which oh, is yeah. just an insane amount. These are, like, huge feature stories, sometimes investment reporting that require a ton of work. Mm. And when you're, we had two staff writers at the time, just Eric and I, without many freelance contributors, and so we'd look at, like, our upcoming story docket, and we'd have eight of the next nine cover right. stories or something. And it was just... You know, sometimes you just want to blow your head off. The stress is so high. And, and the, the sheer variety means that you're not just going to meetings and taking notes. You've got to go all over the region and go to not meetings, but meet people. Yeah, basically. spend time with get people. Get in living real, rooms and uh-huh. talk to people, yeah. which you have to build rapport. And then, you know, it's which is all part of the fun and, and I really the incredibly enriching experience. But it's, it's very... <laughs> It's difficult. I mean, it's yeah, hard. It's, right? it's really hard work. It is. So, how many um, people who work at the Post were hired from all weeklies? People who kind of like came up and know the local really well, and then they can go, you know, to DC. And- well, I, I don't know like a specific number. I know about like six of my friends from where I used to work all work at the Post. About um, because, like I said, I think those skills really translate well to any type of news situation you know mm-hmm. I think that's what that's kind of what I was emphasizing is that like I think that anybody like the type of skills that like grow in that lab atmosphere of the all weekly definitely are like the skills that make you a good reporter anywhere so if all weeklies are kind of shrinking some of them being taken away that's gonna no, hurt no. the national scene oh, yeah I know for sure yeah no absolutely if you're just hiring policy wonks from Georgetown yeah, I know. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, they're going to lose touch almost like the political system, too. Oh, for sure. I worked I mean, on Capitol Hill. So. Yeah, no, I, I think that's 100% because I feel like, I don't think, I think that's what people don't realize about, like, the, the disappearance of all weeklies is that you're really, like, losing, like, the next generation of, like, national journalists. Like, who are they going to find, you know? Yeah, I don't know. So I don't, I don't know. If, if you're a young reporter, I don't know where you would start to yeah. Inside business. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I always say, like, I, I, and I know this just from talking to Vince and stuff, when 
seen or places have job openings like they don't get like he says that they don't get like great candidates which I think that if I was coming out of the Columbia Journalism School or Medill uh, I would like run to an all-weekly like I don't know why I think they think that they should all be working at the New Yorker out of grad school but honestly no like you should just run to an all-weekly well there I mean same thing uh, there, there are the benefits of the job to me are you know inherent just the freedom to write long I mean to do long stories on I mean, regularly, um, you're getting a ton of bylines, a ton of experience rapidly. But I, I can see the, they're kind of scruffy, you know, you might think they, they don't get as much respect as even like the local daily or national magazines or something like that. It's, uh, well, they weren't really even on my radar of, uh, mm. when I first graduated. I mean, now I, I wish they had been, but. I think another trend, I mean, you mentioned sort of the hot take era of journalism, which I think yeah, in many ways is still going on, but I think, Part, you know, one thing that I think journalism students or younger writers should be wary of is jobs that want you to churn out oh my God. hashtag content. And, you know, make no mistake, Scene posts a lot of digital news. Hashtag content. Uh, not even digital news, <laughs> just content. And um, that's Gar- garbage. That's part of uh, <laughs> what needs to be produced, I guess. But I guess my point is that um, in a place like Scene, you know, when we were working there, a former staff writer, Doug Brown, was there. Vince was the editor, um, still is, of course. Guys like Pete Cotts, these former editors that you mentioned, who would come back to town and just talk with us as though we were... I mean, I just met the guy, and he sort of brings you into his world. But he instills this mission of journalism that really, for me, when I was 23 or whatever, really fired me up. And, you know, say what you will say what you will about small community papers like Sun News, but those conversations just weren't happening then. Right. And uh, that was a big selling point for Scene. I think most alt-weeklies you'd find, you know, these Picatsian characters that can just get you going. And journalism school doesn't do it either, Be- really. Beeman Lab had a um, pretty interesting series of stories about looking, looking ahead the world of journalism in 2019 and beyond. And one of them <clears throat> was about the kind of the, the nature and character of working journalists today, because there's so few of them. Um, the ones who are sticking it out basically are those who don't just love journalism, but are real, really committed to democracy and so forth. Yeah. Which I, I found kind of interesting. And that that sort of person probably rejects the idea of having to crank out three or four content blog posts a day, which is like the I can't think of anything more soul crushing. Yeah. Most people I know who get into you know writing or not as much journalism. I'm kind of viewing it as another genre of writing mm-hmm. that might have more urgency than others. But people would just go; um, they're fine with it, like just having a like an unpaid internship at some bigger publication in New York, Chicago, L.A. And uh, I th- it's weird how it becomes instead of like being committed to democracy, mm-hmm. like good journalists are. It's just about cultural capital, having clout, <clears throat> which isn't good. And then we were just talking about. Um, people, you said, uh, Kyle, that people from these journalism schools, you don't understand why they wouldn't go to like Nashville, go to Memphis, places like these to cover local politics. And it just reminded me of uh, a few years back. Um, like, I think people are, 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 are afraid of having their identity, which is so tied to the coasts, like be thrown, you know, just thrown off a cliff in, into a new place. Mm-hmm. It, it's terrifying. But I was reading something about Harvard. Um, I think after Trump, 
they had like a study abroad program, but like not to Madrid or like London. They had one where they like went to Toledo <laughs> to like study the people and like understand their problems then go back. Um, yeah. It just, it's another, even, even in journalism, as, as like we've been discussing, what a, I've a always been talking about idea. this coastal yeah. divide. <laughs> go, go study the poor heart. Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I just think of that trend of like the alt weekly dying, like the national, even though the Washington Post is, seems to have a good mission statement now. Um, some you see well, with all media, you see with all media. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean like th- there's a un- unbelievable concentration of digital journalists in New York and Washington DC when the real need for journalism in this country are in, you know, mid-sized cities, you know, Kansas City, Louisville, wherever, all over, all over the country that don't have any committed, dedicated reporters. Well, I shouldn't say any, but just have so few um, that could be doing, I think, a real public service in places like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of those people just want to write stuff and not actually, like, read the work of others, I think. And, like, all, like, the research and stuff like that. Just, I don't know, that's a different story, just uh, becoming yeah, like a cultural I mean, influencer. Right, yeah. I mean, if you're in you Salt know. Lake City or something like that, you're probably not chasing, or even if you are chasing, you're probably not getting national prestige for your feature story in the, in the All Weekly, but... Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, it's... Is there an All Weekly? No. There is. Salt Lake City, it's, there's a good one. Yeah. yeah. That's, that place is on the rise, I hear. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, though. Like, well, no, it is. No, I you, promise, man. You, they, you they, they got the Salt Lake uh, City, like, t-shirt store. It's kind of a tech utopia, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, one of my friends is tech out They have a good daily paper. The Tribune, right? Yeah, Salt Lake Tribune. Okay. pretty good. Although, I think I just laid off a bunch of people. So within the last year. <laughs> yeah. show, show me a newspaper. Yeah, yeah it has The outline... Well, has oh, the yeah. oh god, the outline. What happened to the outline? When your when your when your when your uh, mission statement out front is just like we actually publish fucking interesting stuff. <laughs> like, it's not gonna. I don't know. Like it's not bold claim. Bold yeah. claim. Okay, why don't we pivot now to, unless you guys have more to say about all we, we, I mean, we, we can we can chime we can, in we can keep we going can, we can chime in we can do whatever I want to I want the listeners to know, like. We've alluded to it. We've talked about it, but like really more in depth, talk about Kyle's book. Okay. Yeah. Um, just because you know, the podcast they're supposed to be like their own thing, but a lot of them we want to connect to the reviews that we'll do it. We're doing. Okay. And Eric's about to do a, a review of the book for us. Oh, Uh-oh, shit, this really? Is, this is pretty yeah. incestuous. Damn. <laughs> bringing that flamethrower on me. He's like our like What's contributing that? writer for journalism books. He wrote a great oh, review yeah, of that mass massacre in oh, Mexico. I, I read that. Yeah, that was a good. It's really good. That was a good review. Appreciate it. Yeah, well, it's it's a fun form. I I, I like uh, I like what you've been doing, Billy. And um, well, I mean, obviously, we'll we'll let's start talking about the book. Basically, there's yeah. a lot to say. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, and definitely want those reviews to be able to like stand in their own right as something. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm glad you think it's a cool form. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it's another place to uh, let ideas breathe in Cleveland, basically, because. Not to go out too far off topic, but I guess my point is, you know, writing about that Mexico book, the essay was actually about Cleveland, basically. And I think, you know, again, let that tangent slide. This book, though, there's a lot to say about Obviously. Cleveland. Obviously. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you want to kind of pivot to leading the discussion, Eric? Yeah, well, um, I think a good natural segue would be, and I think it comes up in your prologue, but it's really baked throughout, is there's a lot of first person in the book. Uh, you know, your work is itself a character and you know you talk a lot about the need for a larger context and you know 
folks from CNN being there when these guys get out of prison and sort of feeling this sort of bad taste in your mouth about just the, the simple, easy uh, crawler at the bottom of CNN. This is the longest case of wrongful incarceration in US history and then they sort of parachute back out. Um, you know, maybe a good place to start would be just sort of talking about um, not that frustration, um, but what you did in 2011 to sort of surmount that um, as you- 2014. Well, I'll go back or, even to the first story. Okay, the first story. Uh, when you started working on this, you mentioned that sort of, it, you talk about professional detachment, you know, the need to fill feature holes, almost making these Xeroxes as like a side project. But at a certain point though, it became something bigger. Yeah. That story. No, I definitely felt like, I think the moment when I realized that they were innocent, that I was actually like dealing with, you know, three lives. And kind of when I hit the gravity of that, when I, when that hit me, I realized, you know, it hit me in like a very personal and human way, I think, especially because I'd gotten to know one of the guys so well that uh, it kind of rubbled that personal detachment. And I, over time, kind of began to realize that that was kind of BS. I mean, I think that if you're too detached, because we're all supposed to be professionally detached from these stories that we do. But at some level, that kind of also like closes off your empathy, which I think is what actually makes powerful journalism work. So, you know, you have to be personally invested in these stories. And, it, and I think, in a way, I had, it almost commodifies the situation. It commodifies the story that you're trying to tell, which I think in a way debases it a little bit. So I definitely, especially when I realized I was actually dealing with live ammo here, technically, you know, really, like this was an actual serious thing. Uh, that was why I, you know, realized I kind of, I think I wrote in here that I kind of had stepped outside of the kind of enclosure, safety enclosure of journalism and realized that this was, these were real lives. And I think all, <laughs> excuse me, I think all good journalists do that. I think you have to recognize that, that, that there's a balance, you know, you can't just treat these people as, that you're writing about is, is um, you know, just people you're observing. You know, you're, you're yeah. impacting their lives as well by observing them and being involved in them. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, and then of course, um, you know, as we, we've already talked about the idea of sort of being uh, frustrated, I guess would be the word, at the apparent inaction after the 2011 story comes out. So, Let's just fast forward a little bit and we can jump around here. In 2014, of course, as they're getting out, uh, you wrote not only another feature for Scene, also called Good Kids, Bad City, uh, but one would sort of assume that at least the seedlings of this book were already sort of sprouting, sure. I guess. And sort of that, you know, what was that moment like? Not only seeing, going to those hearings and, and seeing these guys leave the Justice Center, but also sort of realizing like, for you as a journalist, the work is still going on, there's more to do. Right, well, I mean, I should say that when they got out in 2014, um, I actually was like kind of pissed off because, you know, this was a great day, you know, it was amazing to see like your work have this type of impact. At the same time, seeing the national coverage of it and how like kind of shallow and glib it was, you know, longest wrongful conviction in US history, you know, the Chiron thing. and. Yeah. Uh, you know, where are you going to eat first? Or like, what's, what's, what's the biggest change you've noticed? When really these guys are just like it's bewildered like and shell-shocked and give no shit about where they're eating. They like are just like, just 
bewildered by everything. Um, and I kind of over time realized that I think the way we talk about wrongful conviction in this country is wrong because of the narrative, the kind of the simple narratives that we usually reach for are very narrowly focused in terms of like, oh, this is just one case where like everything went right, wrong. Right, right. And they're very like singular and we don't really have the stomach for a larger contextual conversation about the systemic issues involved. And I realized when I was writing that second story, you know, it was a 6,000 word story, it was pretty long, more than 6,000 words. And uh, I realized there was just so much more to say. And so I definitely knew that there was a book in that. Um, I think kind of what I thought about, kind of what I conceptualized as a book is, or in that early date is, is where it ended up. You know, I think that's what, I wasn't surprised in the writing of it. Sometimes things take a direction that you didn't think they would. And this book took a lot of directions that I didn't think I would go down. But it, in general, I think it was the book that I conceptualized that. Yeah, I because uh, I've been eager to sort of talk more about this idea, and I think you mentioned at, on, you know the acknowledgments this piece about how this took three years to write and sort of a lot of jumbled fragments all being put together. It's also your first book, and so you know what would I mean? There's no real easy way of asking a super broad question here, but what was that process like on a more granular level? Of you know we we've all talked about just this idea of churning out not churning out, but writing feature stories over the course of maybe anywhere from a few weeks to a few months or a few days sometimes when you have to, but, but a book, um, I mean, how, you know, how do you start? What do you, what do, you <laughs> yeah. do? Is it just sort of a long magazine feature in theory, or are you chiseling away at chapters? Or well, I, I really like seriously outline. Like I've always been a huge outliner. Um, and I think of the first like two months I was working on the book, I just did this really extended outline about where I wanted to go and, and, and mapped it out pretty clearly chapter by chapter. Mm -hmm. And within that outline, I realized that there were a lot of cool ways to use this, that the story that was natural, the natural story of this case was a great way to jump off and talk about different things. As in, you could talk about uh, like the Glenville shootout. You could talk about the 1980s drug war in Cleveland. You could talk about the prison rights movement in the 70s. You could talk about all these different things. Talk about 2010-ish Cleveland being at the bottom of the bucket, you know, basically being ground zero for being a shit place. Yeah. Uh, and you could just talk about all these different things, the rise of DNA cases and how they were used... And so I basically conceptualized each chapter as like a 5,000 word feature story. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of how the writing, I think, all panned out. I think each chapter is within 1,000 words of 5,000. But so that, and that's how I sat down to write it. You know, it takes about a week, at least for me, to write like a 5,000 word feature story. So it's quick. that was, yeah, I mean, that's like ideal. But like, really, it was you know, all over the map. But, you know, very much segmented, and I knew from my outline like what each chapter was trying to do and one thing that I've learned over writing over time is just this idea that like every paragraph has to do something you know every paragraph has to make a point or communicate something or like lead in the next one so like every paragraph has a job to do and so I was very conscious conscious of that working on the book that everything was like working like that and the nice thing about a book is you have someone not great amount of time but you have time to like tinker around and like make sure all that works and stuff like that. yeah so. 
Well, I think, you know, one of the interesting things about wrongful conviction stories, and again, based on your work in 2011, I think Sam would probably agree as well, we tried to write a lot about them as an idea at scene. One of the interesting things about those stories, though, is that um, it, in a wrongful conviction story, the story is not at all about the person or the people in prison because they didn't do the crime. They should never have been there. And so the story ends up being about everything else. So you do, I mean, a lot of this book is about Cleveland history, basically. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what was, what was, um, I know you mentioned it in the introduction, some of the reading that you had been doing, what was sort of the research process like? And, you know, how were you um, digging into Cleveland's past in a way that you maybe hadn't yet? In, oh, in well, I mean, I, you know, I, I read you know, all the books I could on Carl Stokes in that era. Um, there's, like, actually been some, like, really good ones. Uh, especially also, I think I was telling you about the one, well, Checkmate in Cleveland, oh, yeah. you know, that book. Is Phil's on. Yeah. From case. And then that got me down this rabbit hole of, like, there's been a lot of books that were written about the 70s in Cleveland. There's mm -hmm. one, I forget, it's, like, called, like, it has the wonkiest title, like, something, like, Power politics, or something. it was just like a very academic study yeah, of the Kucinich yeah. era. Yeah, but it's really, really like actually good and like fascinating in like a real nerdy way, uh, and that really like helped me open my eyes and, and kind of turn my thinking in a certain way. Uh, I read like a ton of old, you know, the Plain Dealers from that era. You just kind of have to know mm -hmm. what was happening, you know, in that era day to day. Like one of the chapters, I really wanted to like. It's a chapter of the, I think it's the second chapter, the day that the crime happens, and I really wanted to make this like big picture thing about what was happening, and then narrow it down to like Ronnie Bridgman waking up in his bedroom, because mm -hmm. it was crazy in Cleveland at the time. It was so interesting because that was the Danny Green bombings and right, stuff like right, that right, are going yeah. on, and like all this crazy stuff. And so, in the backdrop of this, so I really wanted, so you know, that all came from research in the newspapers and stuff like that. I mean, I was really, um, not to get like super like book nerdy but like two like writers that really influence this book one is uh rebecca solnit who i quote in the beginning like i had just read her first book savage dreams which is really good and the other book that i've been reading like the whole time i was reading writing the book was uh rebecca west's uh black falcon and gray lamb is it or is it black is it I don't know. stupid. I don't know. It's this thousand page. You know this book? It's amazing. It's like this over thousand page book that Rebe uh, Rebecca West wrote about Yugoslavia in between World War One and Two. Oh basically about how wow. fascism is spreading. Yeah, it's like this. It's nonfiction masterpiece. It's so good. Uh, but the reason I really like those two books is because they were both about places, but like not. They they really didn't just like history and reportage and like memoir and all these things we're all blended together because like if you're in a place like all those things like mingle you know what happens to you what's happened before and uh and i really thought that that was really very influential in how i like wrote this book yeah um you know at a couple points in the book and i guess we've already sort of done it and any good clevelander knows that it's sort of a part of of the identity you take some some pretty intense shots at cleveland and um and not just the police department or the records room or the plane dealer or what have you, but the actual whole conception of Cleveland. Um, and I think part of that, you know, in the book is, is sort of that moment of, of frustration after what the boy saw came out and just sort of reconciling, you know, 
um, again, you're a character in this book and you're contending with personal thoughts, but um, you know, we talk about the larger context. Obviously, you have no real control over how Cleveland takes this book or what happens next. Um, you know, the city rolls on. But we just got through the third season of Serial, and yeah. you know, a lot of conversations are happening uh, about policing and the Cuyahoga County court system. Um, this is a part of that conversation, I would argue. So is this actual podcast that we're doing right now. What, I mean, again, I don't want to be too prescriptive here, but what would you, what would be your recommendation to Clevelanders, you know, when you head back to, to D.C., but obviously still have ties here, as we read to this. The White I mean, Castle. Yeah, we're doing yeah, yeah. We're still. <laughs> Sam summarized each uh, episode and scene as well, so he yeah. knows a lot about it. What's that? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the timing of that in this book, to me, uh, you know, I remember when Serial Season 3 came out, Sam, you, like you said, you were starting to write about it. And it I broke think, the story, right, that she was doing. Yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, it just happened to call her up and said, hey, can do an interview? So... <laughs> 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 To right. kind of coincide with the announcement. So. How well, done, actually, your so news. you're saying how would this, how would I hope? Well, you know, like... It's a cheesy I, question, but... Yeah, no, know. and like, I've like, like, I know Sarah, someone we've email, emailed, because mm-hmm. yeah. I sent her a copy of the book, we've emailed back and forth a little bit, and I know Emmanuel oh, through oh, you. Oh. Through you. Oh, right, no, I meant, I meant sending Sarah a book, that's very... Yeah, of course I was going to send, yeah, of course man. I was going to send the serial folks books, you know, like... But I knew them, or I knew Emmanuel, yeah. like, got to know him pretty well, and, like, we would talk about that. And I, th- I think the Serial podcast was great. Um, but I thought, you know, it was interesting, because when you did that interview, I think this is your interview with her, with Sarah, where she was, like, talking about the lack of outrage. Oh, yeah. Which, was mm-hmm. in, which I completely felt 100%. Mm-hmm. And, like, and, and she was shocked, and it, it is true. Like, you would think people would be outraged about this. And, like, honestly, you know, I, was walk- I walked over here from Ohio City, and I see all these new... Like condos, like in Goose Island, that just go. Yeah, duck yeah, yeah. Or duck, I'm sorry, Goose Island. They have. Sorry. Oh you know, man, you're I'm thinking, you're thinking about. Uh, yeah, yeah, beer, I was thinking yeah. about beer. Yeah, Chicago Brewery. <laughs> Damn it. Now everyone's gonna. Yeah. Classic. DC guy. Yeah. <laughs> no, in Duck Island. But the uh, and I was thinking about it when I was walking over here, that like if you were gonna sink like a good amount of money into buying one of those, you should be fucking outraged about how the city of Cleveland is run. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's what we're talking about. We're all talking about like political power and leadership. You yeah. know? You're talking about the police department, the court system. All that stems from decades of, of bad or um, malicious or um, self-serving leadership. Mm-hmm. Right? So like that's so if I was going to sink a half million dollars in a slick condo in Duck Island, I don't know if they're a half million there are 600,000. Okay. Oh, my bad. All right. Jesus yeah. Christ. But still, like, I would really care about who was running the city that I was about to make this investment. I mean, more than likely, you'd probably be delighted that you've got a 15-year tax abatement on your Duck Island condo, so you can pay a lot less than what you would be. True. Yeah. I mean, that's that's probably true. But, I mean, just the sit- basics, I hear, basic yeah, mechanics I think, of the city, though. You know? I, I totally agree. I'm so sorry. I just... What I would say is that what I would hope is that people would just care and vote better. Mm-hmm. That's what I think needs to happen. I think a big issue is that, I mean, I think black and white is probably the biggest, uh, you know, tension in Cleveland. Those are the only two races we know in Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Just as someone who's worked for nonprofits and seen people, you know, in the inner city, like, go there for, like, a second, help out, and just go back to their communities, um, I just don't think people 
meet each other and just, like on a really local like level people like circles don't really cross um i mean this is a totally different example but just like playing basketball mm-hmm. at abbey park in uh duck island just on that's like on a basic level a way that people could get outraged i don't know like if there are people you interact with and stay in touch with like then you'll identify with people that you've probably been raised um maybe not to hate but just like view is like just different people different circumstances um i don't know like what the answer is or anything certainly this is the type of thing that needs to point out problems but i think we've all kind of had like a local bent um towards like wanting to change things lately yeah I think reinvestment in the city, you know, because suburbs, I think the lesson of the late 20th century is that suburbs don't work. So people are moving (laughs) back into the cores, right? And they're finding that the cores have been horribly mismanaged and uh, terribly governed for 50 years because everyone went out to the suburbs. So I feel like, you know, I think that, I think that, people just need like I said need to vote better and to, yeah. I think there has to be some and, and the black and white thing I mean that's been the ruling political kind of dichotomy in Cleveland for the last six years I don't know in the future that it will be because I feel like we're almost not like in a post-racial place but I feel like I don't know that those politics are going to like play out well anymore I mean we've lived in the era where the county was run by whites from the suburbs and the city was run by black politicians and it obviously hasn't served either all that well and you know there just has to be a new a new run of leadership in the city i feel like yeah i mean there are when sam runs for mayor that's uh <laughs> 2021 yeah. no thank you <laughs> Four terms later. I heard there's uh, I heard this is a good you know you can take a lot of time off. Incidentally, <laughs> 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 so, so. the black community's not all that bothered by that. I mean, they don't. I mean, I, I thought there would be outrage as well. Just I, I thought that piece would generate some some criticism of Frank Jackson. And from what I've heard, it's they're treating it as an opportunity to rally around him instead of well, voting. Who's him. listening to it though? For the most part. Eight to ten thousand readers at cleanseat.com. <laughs> no, I mean uh, the, the 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 podcast. That's the a serial. Yeah. Oh, I think a ton of people. Oh, I, mean, yeah, I, was, I mean, but like, probably not inner city black people. That might be. I mean, that's a different interesting. Thing. I mean, I don't, I don't know. know. Maybe I'll cut that. <laughs> I don't know. In any case, yeah. I mean, there's. There's got to be some radical changes, but I don't I don't see it happening anytime soon. In part because I don't think that the current political leaders, as bad as they are, are kind of like the root cause of the city's woes. What would you say the root cause of the city? I mean, in crude terms, the predations of the business community. Yeah, it's yeah. And the I mean, the, ever since Kucinich, they rally together in a pretty explicit cabal. I mean, they. It's a, "Quote unquote benign conspiracy of executives and entrepreneurs who decided they were going to take over the city and kind of impose their will on kind civic affairs." Kind of like the Cleveland Public Power um, First Energy situation, was, where you're trying to make it public. Well, it was there was that under Kucinich, but it was after that. They were okay. so um, 
rocked by that, mm -hmm. that Kucinich was this real populist mayor who stood up against the banks, they said, we'll never let this happen again. So all your top CEOs, they formed these very shadowy organizations to kind of like puppeteer the city. They've been doing it ever since. Boinovich was their guy. They installed him as mayor all through the 80s, then Michael mm -hmm. White, and even Campbell and Jackson have been doing the bidding of their corporate masters. It sounds like a you know, like lunatic, but that's it's true, mm -hmm. which is why the city's government, I mean, city and county government are so encumbered paying for outlandish mega projects, the sports stadiums are the obvious example, mm -hmm. but all these big projects, we don't have the money to pay for basic city services, yeah. to hire you know, investigators in the rape and homicide units. I mean, it's just it's crazy. It's a total imbalance of priorities. Yeah, I would change my answer to what Sam's like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's, that's correct. That's, that's right. And the people who do maybe have like money and power are kind of under that destination Cleveland, like, side of the spectacle, like, we're one Cleveland, this is Cleveland. And if that that's not Cleveland. <laughs> well, I've said this before, but my my general take is that they have a very narrow definition of what Cleveland means. When they say Cleveland, they're often referring to downtown or their individual businesses. They're not referring to the residents of Glenville. Like, what are we talking West about Park. when we're talking about Cleveland? Yeah. This <laughs> is what we talk about when we talk about I, I, Carver, I, I would think, though, I guess my worry is that, like, that cabal, for lack of a better word, uh -huh. like yeah. I feel like it's the quality of the cabal has gotten so much poorer. <laughs> <laughs> because if you think about it, I mean, Cleveland used to have, and this all goes back to its industrial base, because you had you know the huge industrial base, but then that was served by huge law firms, huge accounting firms, right. this whole like white collar infrastructure that mm -hmm. was here that definitely ran a lot of the city and was definitely part of that. But you know, a lot of that has just disappeared, and so now you have. Craven real estate development. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah, I know. Oh, I like Craven, yeah. Like, if you have a villainous developer from the Ivy League who lives in Hunting Valley, it's like, all right, he's probably, <laughs> all right, yeah, fuck he's off. probably a little... <laughs> I live in Hunting Valley. Oh, parents, sorry. My parents, yeah. No, 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 no. What I'm saying, no, I was, I was going to no, say, I mean, like, I would take that over the, the Craven, like, guy from Parma or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Developer from, you know, uh, the old Batman line. You know, <laughs> the city needs a better class. Of of yeah, yeah, I know. Some, you know. Well, honestly, it's kind of like, you know, an old school Republican or neo lib or something yeah, like Donald yeah. Trump who just wears it on his sleeve. Yeah. I mean, the old guys that at least would gesture toward civic mindedness. Yes. But, but they were all about their, you know, profits for their, themselves yeah, and their yeah. associates. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting to see a lot of the. You know, we talk about the sort of shifting of the tone in Cleveland a couple of years back, especially, you know, in 2014 when the big headline was LeBron returning, but another headline was these guys getting out of prison. A lot of, a lot of what's happened since then is a total distraction from the actual idea of Cleveland, you know, supplanted now with this just very narrow, um, almost just individual downtownish right. definition. I think, you know, downtown, that's a hard thing to shake off for a city because it's just getting more ingrained. We have this idea and we try hard enough. It will happen eventually. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, all they do, I mean, they devote a ton of resources to public relations. So whenever, PR, dude. That's what I yeah, always fucking that's, talk that's about, That's where man. all the journalists are going. It started, like, World War One. Woodrow Wilson's boy, like, I don't know what his name is, but he... Uncle Sam, PR, Ali Edward Bernays was right after Freud's nephew. Did you see that Curtis documentary, Adam Curtis? Uh, Century of the Self. Um, just about how, yeah, Edward Bernays like created PR, um, tap into people's like unconscious motives to do certain things, manipulation. I think it's like a small scale 
here with Destination Cleveland. We have like well, our just own like, yeah, if you mobilize, propaganda like a, outlet. Like 2014 syntax campaign, for example. I mean, yeah. there, was a, there was a pretty robust opposition to that, but they were outspent by a fact. I mean, I don't even know what the numbers were, but it was crazy. All the, the keep Cleveland strong mantras and what have you, the billboards and posters everywhere. You just can't compete with that. Even if you've got a strong grassroots uh, organizing effort, when the stadiums have millions of dollars, literal millions of dollars that they're devoting to public relations, it's just tough to overcome. Mm-hmm. That said, I do think there are signs of hope. I mean, I think both the public square um, organization mm-hmm. in 20, early 2017 and the Q deal opposition were incredibly strong and really shook the business community here. I mean, ultimately, the, the Q deal didn't work out because they were sabotaged by some of their own members. But um, but it, it worked. I mean, it, don't forget, it was successful until the last last moment. And I think that's a huge positive step. And I see a lot of, like, there's a lot of good activism happening across town. The Clash group, for example, that's yeah. realizing their lead, uh, lead safe ordinance. It's an incredible coalition of seven, seven member organizations. They're doing really, really good, meaningful work. I mean, they wrote 25-page legislation that is better than anything the city has produced. <laughs> it's yeah. really, it, 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 to me, it's really embarrassing for city leaders because yeah. you've got these organizers out there just doing their work for them. It is as as an avid reader of, of Scene Magazine, <laughs> I, uh, I would say honestly that in, you know in the last couple months, you know we're always looking for ways of explaining Cleveland, you know the, the grand story. I, I do th- I would say right now clash and that debate over sort of lead remediation. It's a big story. Legislation. I think that's the story that is explaining Cleveland to itself right now, or at least I really hope it is. Yeah, that's and really I think. You know, that's that's the one to watch, really. And if you're gonna, not, there is only one, but mm-hmm. I think it's gonna be interesting to see that play out. And you know, hopefully, the the well worn grooves of that like power dynamic are, um, you know, just a little way out. I, can I ask, can I ask one more question, Kyle, about the book? Absolutely. Did, did you read um, Boomtown by Sam Anderson? I didn't. Oklahoma I have it. I haven't read it yet. Okay. Uh, did I, you read it? Well, I, yeah, I just did. It's really, I think it's really really good. Really good. But it's interesting because he's a. He's a national writer for New York Times Magazine who just kind of became fascinated by Oklahoma City mm-hmm. as he was writing a feature mm-hmm. and then wrote this whole book on it, which is a, a cool history that kind of interweaves the story of the Oklahoma City Thunder. But I was wondering mm-hmm. if, um, so two things. One is whether or not the book would have been different if you were writing about this in a different city, if you were kind of approaching it as an outsider. Oh, how, did that, sure. how did that kind of shape your reporting on it? And the reception. I mean, you're, we mentioned, we just kind of joked you're going back to D.C., but is it kind of easier to be harsher because you're not in the mix? Or, like, what's your just kind of take on that? Well, I mean, when I, to your second question first, like, when I wrote the book, I never thought I was going to D.C. Like, okay. the oh, first yeah. draft was done, and I didn't have any idea that I would be going to D.C. Right, so right, right. I was ready to live with the lumps <laughs> that I took. Uh, but I was, um, to the second point, though, um, yeah, I mean, it's very much, this is very much informed by my own, like, Cleveland experience and, mm-hmm. like, growing up here and knowing something of the town, working in the town, feeling what I think are kind of the daily frustrations of being a person who lives here. Um, I mean, I don't, I did think that maybe people in Cleveland would think I was too harsh on the town, and definitely I, you know, worried about that. I didn't lose any sleep over it, though, in the end, because I kind of thought it was all justified and fair. You know, I think it's completely justified. Truth wins the day, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were saying about the uh, the clash. Yeah. Thing. Oh, yeah. I thought that was, that's really interesting. I, and it reminded me, so there's this, um, I love this quote, I heard it on NPR about journalism. Have you ever heard this? It's like, I guess it's an old, like, newsroom mantra about 
Like a journalist should make make what's important interesting, not make what's interesting important. And I always mm, love that because, and we were talking about, that's yeah, I great. love that because we were talking about, and I've done these too, like these jokey profiles where you just like hang out with this crazy dude and you're like this is so interesting you should read 5,000 words about yeah, this shit. Yeah. it's so important <laughs> you know? but but really what's actually important often isn't interesting at face value so you have to like find ways that are people or figures or controversies that enlighten it and in the clash thing and what you were saying I think it's like perfect like that really is a great animating way to get into this this actual like serious topic about the lead stuff. Yeah, I mean it's hard work, and uh, you know whether I mean making what's what was it making what's important interesting yes. is a very complicated, difficult thing because uh, yeah. first you got to figure out what's important, and yeah. that is really well, you, hard. You guys, we've all been to pitch meetings, and if we if you bring up and say, hey, I you know I want to do a story about the lead initiative. It's I mean it's this very important issue. We'd be laughed out of the room. <laughs> like, yeah. Fuck you. What's the story? Yeah. It's like, well, I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of a, it's an important issue. People are dying of lead. Yeah. It's just like, okay, that's not a feature pitch, you yeah. idiot. <laughs> You're not <bringing> a story. <laughs> that is true, yeah. So I mean, t- I think it's just tough. Wrongful conviction stories are hard to pick. I mean, I know it's seen. I think Vince is great for green lighting, green lighting those stories that you yeah. had, all the work you did. Like, Eric Burnett, like, was totally cool. He was supportive of me when I did What the Boys Saw, the first story I wrote. But I think a lot of newsrooms, because they kind of just, like, roll their eyes, feel like it's going to be real complicated, mm-hmm. it's going to take forever, and it's just like... Well, anymore, you, you do the cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and it, it, this happens individually and across newsrooms. If I'm a reporter, and I know that a complicated story that's going to involve a lot of reporting, public records, interviews, and I've got to do three or four features in the next two months it's like I, I just don't have the time or energy to, to do it yeah. it becomes a real it's, I mean it's annoying that that calculation happens but it does all the time what I remember doing the Kevin Keith story was basically every couple of weeks begging Vince <laughs> to let me just do something else <laughs> and push Kevin Keith back another oh, yeah. month and thankfully uh, he let me do that you know probably too many times and obviously the story eventually came out but that's the thing is I mean these are extremely complicated stories and you are dealing with life or death stakes and you got to be sure of what you're writing about, obviously. But you also, a, I get you do need to make it interesting because it's going to be a story that needs to be read. Yeah. But you know, you're talking about my very minute details of where someone was at a certain point in time and who wrote what and where that file is. Yeah. And, you know, for the writer and the editor, that's Jesus. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember I wrote so many crap stories so I could write what the boy saw, <laughs> oh, including. Yeah. Have you ever read the Casey Anthony story? No. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> so bad. It was like, do you know? You remember Casey Anthony, the baby killer, right? Yeah, well, the, she yeah, killed her she kid. Yeah. Florida, right? Yeah. Well, then yeah. there were all these rumors that she was in Newberry, Ohio. <laughs> do you know about this? <laughs> and I was like, this story was due, and and I was like. Not ready to do this yet, and I was like, I was like, Eric, uh, what if I go out to Newberry looking for Casey Anthony? And he was like, I don't know if that's a story. And I was like, Well, I'm gonna try it. And so I just went out with a photographer to Newberry and wrote this, just like a joking, like action scene news team report from live from Newberry, right, right, right. which only could have gotten away with in an all weekly. But also, I got the worst hate mail in the world. Like, people were like, I've been reading scene every day for 20 years, and now I'm stopping because of this story. (laughs) That's where the barn is, by the way. 
What's that? Oh, Newberry. Yeah, the barn. Yeah, yeah. Newberry. There's a... Singing has a great legacy of sort of tongue-in-cheek things. There was... Oh, my um, God. It might have been Joe, Joe the, the investigator. The investigator. The oh, dude, that story is like so classic. Good. I mean, they're oh, it's man. a manly on feast. Yeah, it's really. Why, yeah, I'm always trying to to tell people go in the scene archives. You'll find some amazing. We, th- by now, the scene is fucking old. I mean, there should be a you know, anthology. Cult, cult anthologies. Yeah. yeah. Tell Best Belt, Belt, Belt Publishing. If you're listening to this, hands <laughs> <laughs> on the board now. Yeah, you could do you could do multiple volumes you can do like you know how the new yorker has like the profile book and then like, oh, the yeah. sports reporting book and then like humor yeah Place. yeah <laughs> and you'd be surprised at how many i mean have you ever read the um the heifer is it hoggers hoggers oh my god i, was just about to I mean that's legendary it's yes. still if you go in our like on the like Probably right now in our online traffic, four or five people are reading it. It's Dear like, listener, just, find the hoggers. Don't, yeah. Yeah. don't miss it. Yeah. Just, just saying hi. But yeah, there, I mean the the, the humor the, to balance out the the what the boys saw saws of the world. The, you know those stories, the humor of an alt weekly, which also takes a lot of. Uh, you know, you've got to be a really good writer to pull it off. Yeah, and, you know, funny the, is the hardest. I think. It's very hard, and it's even harder when you're trying to convince uh, an audience that's expecting a, a news story that no, you should read this. It's it's going to be funny, and then sometimes it doesn't land. Um, we made we've made a lot of attempts uh, over the years. I have a couple in my mind, even just short stuff. I mean, with the web, you just got to churn stuff out, and there are a couple of memorable, truly nonsensical stories. <laughs> but I think if you you know, whenever I would do them, I would try to bake in larger truths and. You know, maybe I'm full of it, but that was always the intent. I mean, we've all, every staff writer in All Weekly has had his or her fair share of clunkers. And sometimes it's like, I think some of it is a, like a self-preservation thing, like I was saying. Like, you just need to space out your big stories because there's only so much fuel in the tank, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then some of it, too, is like a material. Sometimes you just need a, a breather. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I should probably get going pretty soon. Okay. Also, so if there's anything, is there anything else you wanted to cover or like areas of you? Guys want no, that's to good. Sam said yeah. the truth wins out. I thought we did a good. Uh, that was that great. Was good. That was so, really cool. Yeah. yeah. Luke eight seventeen. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest. Neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. All right. <clears throat> I like it. that. Yeah. 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 Luke. I like, <laughs> I like that fucking uh, the job of a journalist. Making the important interesting. Yeah, yeah, isn't that good? I heard it on the radio. I was like, yeah, I'm gonna start. Yeah, and this right. this kind of links back tattooed to tattooed on my dick. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of comes back to the story that we published in Clean Review Books on Ida Tarbell. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll send it to you. Yeah, 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 dude, please. Yeah, yeah cool. Um, signing off, uh, Billy Lennon. Uh, uh, sign yeah. off, dude. This is Kyle signing off. This is Sam signing off. This is Eric signing off. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to play a dope song and uh, shout out our, our friends. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank you. Peace out. Peace. Let's go. I got to pee.